Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, John Rezig, creator of jQuery, JavaScript front-end architect at Khan Academy and all-around JavaScript expert. John, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me, Chris. So I will say it is an absolute honor for me to have you on the show. I've been sort of broadly aware of your movements on the internet, and certainly jQuery is probably one of the more impactful pieces of technology that has been written in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years. So as a citizen of the internet, thank you for your work. <laughs> You're most welcome. I have to ask, what is it like having, uh, this is a big question, so feel free to answer it in any way that makes sense to you, but what is it like having created a piece of technology that has had the impact and spread that jQuery has had? <laughs> I mean, it's been pretty great. I guess like the, I don't know, it's, it's like one of those things where like, I know I did it, <laughs> but also feel very far from it. Of course, I'm also in time, but also just it's such a big thing unto itself. Like, mm -hmm. I have a hard time believing that I did that. Right. <laughs> and in a sense, you sort of created a movement. But at this point, it was, was it 2011 that you moved on from being the core yeah. maintainer director of the project? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, f I first wrote it in 2005 when I was in college and released it January 2006. And then I stepped down... May 2011, when I joined Khan Academy. In the interim period, I was mostly working on it in my spare time. And for about a year or so, I was working on it as part of my job at Mozilla. Yeah, so it's interesting because like now at this point, I've been not working on it for longer than I worked on it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's been pretty incredible to see how it really impacted everyone at that time in sort of web development history where you know these days you can still use jquery it's not as relevant anymore right and that's great because you know browsers have adapted they've moved on they've added new stuff and we're at least a couple abstraction layers higher <laughs> on yep. the food chain now you know we're getting to you know think about things like react hooks and stuff now whereas like previously that's it's it was more like well how do we set an attribute correctly on a dom element <laughs> like, like, and how do we do that across yeah. the different browsers and the, yeah right, the set of problems right. that you were solving back then were very different and there's an interesting arc that i think the project in the world have taken where for a long time jquery was this amazing new thing and then it became essentially table stakes and certainly as a rails developer there was a period of time where prototype i think was included in rails by default and then there was a transition yes. to jquery and that's just been true for a long time now but at the same time a recent trend has been folks moving away from jquery and like github just announced we finally got off of jquery and there's a a celebration that comes along with that, which I find I feel very complicated about because, like you said, I think the available technologies in the platform have moved forward enough that the problem that jQuery was solving isn't necessarily needed anymore. But I, I look at that and I'm like, yeah, but let's remember back when jQuery was a was very important, everyone. Let's make sure we keep that top of mind. And even to the point that like document query selector all or query selector, either of those two, I believe those were very strongly informed by the API that you introduced there. And oh, yeah, yeah. so the platform moved to just sort of adapt and, and take on some of the features of it. So Yeah, and it's interesting because like myself personally, like like at Khan Academy, we were very, very early adopters of React. Mm -hmm. Like I think we were the first people outside of Facebook that started using React. Yeah, so somewhat brazenly. We, uh, yeah, I, th I think we were too early. But I've been removing jQuery code for mm -hmm. like five years now. So like <laughs> Which is interesting that that's, uh, that's a place that your life has taken you. Yeah, and like, I lead the front end team at Khan Academy and like 
part of my job is to advocate for this. You know, I can't be too attached to any particular technology we're using, even if it's a technology I myself wrote. Right. Uh, you know, like, you know, like we have to lo- be able to look at things in a very holistic way and be like, hey, you know, this isn't the right thing for us right now. Mm-hmm. You know, in this case, we're fully a React stack right now. So like, yeah, it certainly is complicated. And I do think about that a lot of... I guess the thing that bothers me about when people talk about the olden days, like yeah, I'm happy to see that jQuery is not so relevant anymore, mm-hmm. and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't use it. But like the, I don't like when people revise history, yes, and be like, oh, it, it was never important, or it was, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the argument would be, but like, I feel like, yeah, like like I said, it, it was a very much of a time and place, and it mm-hmm. was important part of the story that got us to where we are now, that it informed yeah. the direction that then was able to move us away from it. Like I, I see the same thing with CoffeeScript, but almost a little bit stronger where mm. CoffeeScript is now sort of looked on with some negative eyes. But I think it was a very important step in getting us to ES6 and getting us sort of unstuck in like, we entirely skipped ECMAScript 4 because that one was a false start. And so we went from three and then eventually to five and six and on. And I think looking at the way CoffeeScript was and where it was and actually seeing Brendan Ike specifically talk about some of the things like CoffeeScript is another example where it, it informed things, but then sort of obviated itself by virtue of having helped the platform move forward. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great example. And it's certainly like, personally, I bristled at using CoffeeScript. Yeah, I, I liked I like having the pure language. But I absolutely agree with you that I really appreciate the impact that it had in forcing us collectively to be like, hey, you know, JavaScript can be better in some mm. very specific ways. <laughs> and, you know, you see this as well as back when Node was still early on and everyone was trying to figure out how to do like uh, package loading and stuff like that. Mm. Now we have like requires and, and imports, but then there was like, you know, define and all these other mechanisms for for importing packages and things. And of course, a lot of those things may not be looked on as fondly now, but they were all incredibly important parts of the growth of the JavaScript ecosystem to get us where we are now. The way you phrased it of like revisionist history of looking back and, and changing the story now that we ended up somewhere else, uh, I think is the right frame of mind. And I just try and think back and be grateful for the times where these technologies did help us get to a better place, which I certainly am of the opinion that the front end ecosystem is in a vastly better place than say 10, five, even two years ago. But I guess a, a question that I have for you as someone who's been involved in a lot of the changes is I do see some reaction to the rate of change in the world of JavaScript and front-end development in general, Webpacks and Browserify and Babel and all of these different technologies and folks saying like, there's just too much, it moves too quickly and I'm struggling to keep up. What's your experience like with that? Do you find that you feel like it's moving at a good pace or too fast or too slow? I think there's two different things here. One is the rate of innovation, which is pretty good right now. Frankly, I would say it could be even better. It could be even faster. I think the separate thing, though, is the rate at which people feel like they need to switch to things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a couple of things here, which is, and again, like maybe just maybe using like React hooks as a good example, because this is like like a hot new thing that yep. like you know the the React team obviously you know really deliberated over this and did a lot of work and like came up with a really good prototype and. It's interesting to watch people's reactions to this. Like my personal reaction to it is like, this looks incredibly cool. 
I will check this out in like a year. You know, like I like I'm happy to wait and let this stabilize mm-hmm. and see where the dust settles, see what plugins people make. And like I'm happily writing React today. I'm not finding that I need React hooks in my mm-hmm. life right now. Like let's wait until that happens. And it's interesting talking with my coworkers at Khan Academy, because we all had a very similar reaction where we were like, this looks amazing. Let's just wait. Mm-hmm. You know, let's just wait and see how it goes. I think one thing that kind of maybe pushes that us in that direction as well is that like we have a massive code base. So like any sort of porting effort would be formidable. But some people look at React hooks and they're like, oh man, if I don't start learning this today, like I'm gonna get left behind. Like this is gonna be so important that like I, I have to keep on top of the trends. I have to start using this right now. And I'm not convinced that that's the case. So obviously for something like React Hooks, it's, it, you're not even supposed to be using it in production at this point. Right. I think that's just a good analogy for a lot of technology that does exist. Yep. And I think this is a skill that is really, it's not taught very well or it's underappreciated, is ability to look at a new technology, and, and either new in the absolute sense or new to you, and be able to figure out if this is in fact something that you should use. Well, I think one thing that's, that's, I guess, related is that this is actually something that at one point had integrated into our interview process at Khan Academy, is of like actually presenting a couple different libraries that did seemingly the same exact thing. And I asked the interviewee to analyze them and then pick one and then justify their decision as to why they had picked them. And it's always interesting to see what people went with, like why they picked one, one thing over another. But yeah, anyway, I think people should be more deliberate in the decisions that they make. And you really take a step back and not be so driven by the trends. I'm not particularly worried about the rate of innovation. And and again, like like I said, I think the innovation could, in fact, in some ways be a little bit faster. But yeah, I think people need to themselves slow down their their rate of adoption. (laughs) I think that is a wonderfully pragmatic and balanced answer. It's interesting, particularly watching the React core team as they talk about this, because they exist in this community or to a certain degree driving this community. And I've noticed that they have a very purposeful way of talking about these things. And particularly Dan Abramov is the one that I see most often saying, by the way, don't rewrite your apps. Like not even when this is in production or in a stable release, like still facebook.com is running on like nine different, we're still using mixins and create class and all of this. And so I really like that that's part of the story that they're telling of like, yes, we're trying to move this forward and trying to give you a path to better, more maintainable code bases, but also feel free to ship some product and keep focusing on the things that are delivering real value to your end users. And I really strongly appreciate that voice. And I feel similarly where like, frankly, I'm excited about the new things as long as they are coming with uh, reasonable deprecation cycles and things that support the kind of gradual adoption that you're talking about, which the vast majority of projects I'm seeing have a great story around that. So I like the answer there. So glad to see that we're, we're in alignment. Mm-hmm. Well, I'd love to transition over and talk a little bit about your work at Khan Academy. I'm particularly interested in sort of the role that you have there and the way that you're directing the platform. And then additionally, you know, love to chat about a few of the different technologies that you're working with. Yeah. So my role right now is I'm a, I'm a front-end architect. And I started in this position at the beginning of 2018, thereabouts. And last year, I was, I was on the uh, classroom team and working on specifically shipping product to students and teachers. And in the past, I've worked on a variety of all, I, I've pretty much worked on everything at Khan Academy. So like I, I've, I've been everywhere. But in my position as an architect, I've been driving our adoption of certain things, 
spearheading certain projects. Like, for example, right now I'm deep in a project for us. We're moving to Webpack to, to use Webpack. And it's the one of the reasons why we're taking so long to do it, <laughs> relatively speaking, is that our build system, our JavaScript build system predates Webpack. Like we wrote our own, right? And then it's like, oh, you know, now there's these other things in Webpack. And then after a certain point, it's like, oh no, it's so much work to move over. But like, so yeah, this is like a many, many months long project with many engineers, and we're probably going to be finishing up here at the end of end of the year. There's like that, and then also we've been building out a, a brand new design system that we're using across across the site. So I, I've been spearheading that work as well. And there's just lots of other things, process things and code related. You know, we're doing like server-side rendering of React and we're doing, you know, big upgrades, like you know, we're upgrading to React 16 and stuff like that. So anyway, so just all, all these various projects and you know, this this is sort of stuff that I'm coordinating or working on or and then working with other teams and, and ensuring that we all are working on the things that are most important to all of us. That makes sense. I'm interested, actually, now, like, as you've listed out a few of those, I sort of have questions about each of them. So we'll, uh, we'll pick and choose what makes sense. But like, for instance, relative what you were just saying about pragmatic adoption and not needing to jump to things, I'm wondering what about transitioning to Webpack is something that, that drew you in? Was it just wanting to get off of a custom build system and go to something that somebody else is maintaining? Or are there particular features that you wanted to pick up that you felt were important enough? Like code splitting, for instance, I don't know if that's something that existed in your older system and that Webpack would give you or not. But One of the big things I've been pushing in my position as an architect is that I want us to use as little custom code as possible. Mm-hmm. There are a couple reasons for that. One, there's a, there's a maintenance burden, which is non-trivial. And even adopting Webpack, for example, we have bunches of custom plugins, Webpack plugins we're having to write. So that's custom code we're going to have to maintain regardless. Yeah. But it's much. It's a much, much smaller burden than having like a completely custom build system entirely. My bigger concern, though, is that the cost of onboarding people to a custom system, you know, the new engineers, and when people get stuck fixing bugs and, and help giving them help, like, is so substantial for custom stuff. Mm-hmm. To me, that is the biggest problem by far. And essentially, at a certain point, you know, maybe about a year ago, or so. We had to kind of made the had to take a step back and make a decision that like, hey, we could invest all this time to improve our build system, make it easier to use, more understandable, less buggy <laughs> or whatever, or we can invest all that time to instead switch to something that is more standardized. That's not to say that Webpack is going to be necessarily a faster or less buggy <laughs> or whatever. Uh, it may still be just as bad in that regard. But at the very least, the people that are coming into the team, like virtually everyone who's joining Khan Academy is coming from an, an environment where they're already using Webpack. Mm-hmm. And they're already expecting certain things to behave in certain ways. So at least for me, the decision was almost a non-technical one. <laughs> now, there are absolutely technical reasons why we want to use Webpack as well. But first and foremost, it was like, okay, how can we be helping our engineers do what they need to do? How can we get them onboarded easier? And at least from a technical side, certainly having better control over the code splitting is absolutely massive. In our old system, we had essentially we had a giant manifest file. And you had to manually define how every bundle was going to be created. So, like, if you wanted a certain file in a certain bundle, you had to put it there yourself, which 
has its pros and cons, but the pro is that the bundle splitting is amazing in that every bundle has exactly what it needs. The downside is is tremendous because it makes the the burden you know for having to create these things is really really high. I imagine it keeps you mindful of bundle size as well in a way that's it's more top of mind than like if it's happening automatically and someone accidentally adds Lodash to a low leaf level component and suddenly the entirety of Lodash ends up in a bundle. Like ideally, you're seeing the the chunk size and things like that. But by virtue of having to add it to a manifest, it maybe makes it a little more top of mind. That said, I agree with the like maintenance burden. That sounds like a, <laughs> a thing that I wouldn't want. I'm just half, cup is half full trying to find that story. Right, there. right, right. And it's definitely one of the, it's definitely a double-edged sword for sure. Yeah, yeah, because it does make you more mindful. But now I'm worried that as we move to Webpack, like, is it going to become too easy to add independencies? And you're just like, oh, I'm just going to require this one utility I need. And like all of a sudden, there's this whole dependency tree that you're pulling mm-hmm. in that you didn't know about. So I think that's a sort of different thing where we'll probably need to write tooling around this to make sure that people don't, you know, shoot themselves in the foot accidentally and make sure that if the, I definitely want to have some stuff that like, hey, you just put up a diff, you know, your dependency is now making this entry point pull in an additional 100K of JavaScript code or something. I feel like that's the sort of thing that we're going to need to develop and probably have to do that Mm in-house. I haven't seen anything that does exactly that sort of stuff, at least yet. That's interesting. I've seen it for the top-level bundle but actually the apps that I'm working on right now are not using code splitting and it's one of the things that I'm exploring. But at, when you do actually do code splitting and especially the like deeper code splitting where subcomponents on a page, so there's a graph library that you want to use, but only when you're on a certain tab of a page, then you can even go to that level. Then you start to end up with a ton of different chunks and bundles. So that's an interesting question that I actually, yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that does seem like tooling that I don't know if you make it and then the world can use it. I, I'd be happy to use that <laughs> if Khan Academy yeah, yeah. wants to put in the open source time. And, uh, yeah, open source maintenance is a thing. That's a whole story right there in and of itself. But. Yeah, and that's certainly that's something that's been tricky for us as an organization to figure out how to balance that. We've had a number of open source projects and we've supported them in different ways. <laughs> Let's say, I think, I think probably the two that are most popular for us right now are uh, Aphrodite which is a library for doing CSS inside React, and Kotec, which is a library for generating math formulas. Uh, obviously, that's more, it's more pertinent to Khan Academy, but if this is more of an alternative to uh, MathJax, mm-hmm. which is out there, which was very, very large and very slow, and we needed something that was going to be much faster and lighter weight. Anyway, so like, I think those are two that are most popular at the moment, but thankfully, in both those cases, communities have stepped up to maintain them. So we get to we get to reap the rewards of that <laughs> to some degree. There's very much a fork in the road situation there, though, where if you are not able to garner that community support, and if you as an organization aren't like I, the design system that you mentioned, is that using Aphrodite? Yes. Okay. So, yes. So the yeah, uh, and we do use Aphrodite a ton, obviously, on our website every single day. That's great to hear. Although I could definitely see the case where you folks were out early in that. I remember using Aphrodite some number of years ago at this point, and it was a wonderful library, but now there are uh, 10, 20 different examples of CSS and JS libraries. And I can see the case where you were early, but then somebody else happened to gain the mind share. And it's like, "Ah, do we we maintain our own thing? Do we internally keep using this? Or frankly, this other thing's just had so much development and has these features. And do we port over to that? And then you still have the maintenance burden to the community. You still that contract of... Well, we put this out there and it is free, but at the same time, our reputation is in a certain way associated with that. So it becomes, 
I've gotten to the point where when I'm working with clients, they'll often be very excited about open sourcing things. And I tend to be a little bit of the like doom and gloom of like, are, are you sure? Is this definitely something that you want to maintain long term <laughs> that you can't imagine moving off of? Because open sourcing is... It's a very lopsided arrangement is what I've seen. It can be fantastic. And like ThoughtBot has a lot of its reputation based on early open source efforts. But at the same time, there's that support burden that just becomes immense depending on the popularity of something. Yeah, it, it does. And I think something for myself is that in my role as a front architect, like I, I think about, okay, what are we doing? Because we're trying to support certain things we're trying to achieve as an organization. And that, that Khan Academy, we're, you know, we're trying to provide a world-class education for everyone everywhere for free. So like that is like that is the baseline. And like the thing is that pretty much everything has to be in service to that. You know, we're a nonprofit. And I think a thing that's a little bit tricky for us is releasing something as open source, or at least and, and again, like when, when I say open source, I don't mean just like putting the code out there. I mean like investing in it and like maintaining it and building a community and all that sort of stuff. It just sometimes isn't in our interest to do so. For the exact reason that you mentioned, like like it's just it's going to be a tremendous amount of work for us, and it's not going to be in service to our mission in general. It's something that we've certainly struggled with over the years. <laughs> I think the community at large struggles with. We just this past week, I think, had the was it event stream or yeah, yeah, flat yeah. map uh, where basically a package had been abandoned or transferred to someone who then nefariously used it to inject code into machines and. It was a case of like, ah, I just didn't want to manage it. You know, the burden of open source is heavy, and so I moved on from it. And I certainly understand that individual's argument there. What's interesting about that particular case is that I've seen that exact strategy advocated, meaning that like, hey, if you have a project that's abandoned, wait until someone shows any interest and then transfer the project to them. Like people advocate, but I've advocated that for that. I've done that as well. I've transferred projects to people who've like wow, you fix a, a bug in this thing that I no longer use? Just take it, please. Like, I don't think, like, that isn't as rare as I think people think it might be. <laughs> oh, no, I think it's, it's very common. I mean, that or uh, the case of things just being abandoned. Those two, I think, happen a lot. And that's the yes. story of a lot of open source. Uh, and it's a complicated story. But yes, this week highlighted that we perhaps have a much larger exploit surface area than we may have top of mind all the time. And yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, that's a, that's a bit of a downer. So let's, uh, let's loop back to some of the more fun things in technology. I think you were starting to circle around ideas there of what you were saying about it's not necessarily in service of our mission. And I think this is one of the things that we try and prioritize in all of our conversations with clients is we as developers may want to write code, but is that always the right idea? What, how do we invest our time? How do we do the best? And we try and push that decision to be much more product-centric and end-user-facing. But I'm interested in your thoughts and how you balance that, especially in, in a role of architect within a larger system like Khan Academy. So at Khan Academy, we, you know, we have a product team, and the product team consists of you know engineering, design, and then there's also all the PMs. And then there's additionally, there's other teams. There's like, you know, a content team that's just producing content. There's marketing and all sorts of different teams. But like, at least in terms of products, we're just, we're one peg of this, <laughs> so to speak. We're trying to support ultimately our mission. And I think in that way, let me put it this way. So I feel like, at least for us personally, over the last few years, the pendulum has swung perhaps too far towards product-centric. Hmm. I mean that we're, we're like we're building stuff and we're like let's ship stuff let's get stuff out there let's get things into the hands of users and we're thinking less about like maintainability and tech debt 
and making sure that we're using like the latest technologies or not latest, but the right technologies, let's say. And so like as a result, during that time, we've accumulated a good chunk of tech debt. Like even though we adopted React, well, I guess it was 2013 or so. I, I forget exactly when, but like we still have jQuery stuff, jQuery backbone. We finally got rid of handlebars like last month. So mm-hmm. like, <laughs> like approximately, so, or actually maybe even this month. Anyway, it's this sort of stuff where there's still a tremendous amount of work to be done here from a technology perspective. And so I think one thing that I'm trying to do is trying to find that right balance. How do we balance a product-centric, you know, like, let's get stuff done, let's ship stuff to users, let's make sure they're happy with, okay, like, how can we make sure that our developer velocity is good going forward? How do we make sure that the performance of our application is good? How do we make sure that everything we're making is accessible accessibility perspective and and like all these different things that we need to worry about as an organization and especially more maybe more so as an engineering team that that this is the stuff we particularly care about but yeah so i don't know it's hard it's really hard so a lot of what i've been doing is stuff that is very i guess this this is a relatively new thing for me but it's making arguments for things that management understands <laughs> i think some things are easier to argue for than others like for example performance like you can say like hey if we make our application faster our users do more things they stick around for longer they're happier a lot of our metrics go up <laughs> as a result but there are other things that become a little fuzzier like how do you say that like if we have a page on our website that's still using legacy code jQuery, backbone handlebar stuff like that users are probably okay generally speaking it's still running so like how do you make the argument that rewriting that page is going to pay dividends to the organization it may not have an immediate user-centric impact, or maybe there will be because there will be some bugs fixed or something. But you kind of have to make different arguments in that case. It's like, okay, this is going to improve our ability to iterate on this page. It's going to improve developer velocity. It's going to make it possible for us to you know, make changes to these pages in a reasonable amount of time. So I think as a result, this maybe speaks a little bit to the changes in how I've approached tech debt personally, which is initially when I was looking at the debt that we had as an organization, I'd be like, okay, well, step one, let's get rid of all of our legacy code everywhere and just go through and just be like, there will be no more jQuery anywhere. Right. <laughs> okay. The next six months of our lives are spent eradicating jQuery. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, when, when we're done, we'll be better off because we don't have that. But my approach now is a bit more pragmatic, I feel, in that it's like, okay, let's opportunistically update certain pages. And we'll just concede the fact that there will be some legacy stuff kicking around, perhaps for a long time. But the fact that we're not updating them also indicates that they just aren't priority pages for us. And so, like, it's okay to have some, like, about page that's still using some legacy code because, like, it's not high traffic. Mm-hmm. It's not super critical. Yep. Anyway, it's it's these sort of things that you kind of have to make a balance for. But I guess this is something that it's been interesting to go through is, is, is like, making these arguments to with management or, or to have these discussions with management <laughs> and being like, 
Yeah, I don't want to argue. Yeah, collaborative discussions. We're working. Yeah. We're working together, and it's like, okay, hey, you know, we want to redo the homepage. All right, well, homepage has a lot of legacy stuff on it. So, does that mean that we go through and clean it up? How do we approach this? Right, and just and help us to make a smarter decision around that. And I like the fact that even though you were contrasting it as saying like you feel like the pendulum may have swung a little too much towards the product side of things, even when talking about tech debt and the times that you would analyze, or at least the discussions around it, you were still focusing on the idea of and this will make the world better because we'll be better able to iterate on that page or things that are still impacting users or like the the product overall. I think the other thing that's interesting coming back to the conversation we had around Webpack and that being sort of a strategic project right now for you folks is the idea that I've noticed in myself over time, I'm more and more resistant to custom code, to custom, well, we have our own build system or we have our own deployment infrastructure, all of these different things. As a consultant, I end up coming into organizations and I feel that pain that you were describing of, oh, you you folks, you do it. Okay, you have your own thing. Uh, Let me try and ramp up on that real quick. And I almost feel like consultants can be useful as canaries in the coal mine in that sense. Like everyone else gets comfortable (laughs) with the unique technology that's here. But every time we go into somewhere new, we're like, I really wish the boring stuff were the same everywhere because then we could focus on the interesting, unique things. So that for me is one of the strong things that I carry forward to each new conversation is if we're starting a conversation about custom platform centric things, custom frameworks, et cetera. I tend to be a naysayer in those conversations, or at least try and be the devil's advocate of like, "Mm, do we need our own build system? Do we need our own deployment infrastructure? Could we temporarily get away with using something that's out there and maintained by a community and all of that? But it, it is an incredibly difficult line to walk. And I think particularly what you were highlighting of like, when do we go through and remove the legacy code? What if it's just sitting there and, and it works and users are fine with it? Like, It's hard to make that argument, but it also... Someday there will be that day that you do need to change that page. And if it's like, oh, this is Backbone? I don't even remember how Backbone works. It's Backbone and CoffeeScript? Oh, it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a unique challenge. It's just something that, that everyone struggles with in some way. I think different organizations come to terms with it in different ways, though. <laughs> but yeah, and I, I guess like we ended up hiring a lot of people last year. And so like I feel like the issue with like having custom systems became much more front of mind for me because it's like we have all these new engineers and they're all like what on earth is this stuff and like it just it gets more complicated and everyone's slowing down and i'm just like oh my goodness it just would have been so much better if we had just done all these other things (laughs) that, Mm -hmm. that we didn't do absolutely Well, I think one last topic that I would love to touch on is the idea of GraphQL, both within Khan Academy and also you are actually in the process of releasing a book, which is uh, the GraphQL guide. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in how Khan Academy is using GraphQL, your thoughts uh, now and how they've evolved over time on that. And it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and that comes up a lot on this podcast. So yeah, I would love to hear a bit about that. GraphQL, I guess we started officially using it early 2017 or so. Prior to that point, we had done some experimentation in like, you know, hackathon type settings, you know, just like trying stuff out. There was a few of us who were just interested and excited. You know, we, we had talked about it as part of our, we have a biweekly front end team meeting where we all sit down and talk about things that are going on, cool new technologies, stuff like that. And, and sometimes in the course of those meetings, people will, will present and be like, hey, there's this cool thing, GraphQL or Relay or whatever. So that's kind of how it got introduced to the team. And I ended up taking it on in early 2017 to implement it. I was on the classroom team, and we were starting to rewrite a whole bunch of stuff 
a whole bunch of features and dashboards and things. I was like, hey, this is a great opportunity. If we're going to be creating a whole bunch of new stuff from scratch, maybe let's take a look at using GraphQL for this instead of our, our existing REST APIs, since we have to be creating new REST APIs anyway. So we experimented with it, and we were really, really happy. I mean, I'm saying this as a, as a front-end engineer. I know there are different concerns from a back-end perspective. But for me, as a front engineer, GraphQL is an absolute delight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is the speed of which you know I can write new queries, I can adjust queries, I can do this all on the client side, you know, with like hot module reloading and stuff. I can just go in there and just like you know tweak a property, hit save, and then all in my editor, and then it's like it's live on the website, and I didn't have to touch any server side code whatsoever. Yeah, it's a stuff like that. It's just, it's frankly it's what it should be. <laughs> So we use flow types for a lot of our, our code. And this is a separate discussion about, because mm. now we're having a discussion internally. It's like, okay, maybe we should I was actually meaning to ask you about that one. Yeah, <laughs> maybe we should have been on the wrong horse. Maybe we should have used TypeScript. But sometimes you don't guess right, you know? Like, if but, only but, you could uh, know up front which the correct one would be, <laughs> then yeah. But anyway, that's a separate discussion. But yeah. like, so using GraphQL with a type system is just so wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's nothing better than it. It's just like, we can do refactoring where, like in our server-side schemas, we can rename a property, hit save, and our linting system will tell us every single place in our application that is now breaking because mm-hmm. of that change. And we can go through every single query and everything that that query uses because we had the flow types tracing all the way down, and we just we know everything that is breaking as a result. It's what API building should be. Yep. <laughs> so like we are using GraphQL in a couple ways I think that are different from probably most organizations. We don't use it for our, our public API. We only use it internally because we keep our queries very strictly locked down. With that, are you and, using persisted queries? Yeah. That- so yeah, we can persist it. And this is both for the web application and for our mobile native applications mm-hmm. as well. Well, and I guess our backend as well as we our backend's Python. So we aren't using a Node.js implementation. We aren't using like, you know, Apollo server and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Although we are using Apollo on the client. So yeah, so I think there are ways in which I think we wish it was a little bit better. Or I suspect that the way in which most people are using GraphQL is like in a full JavaScript stack using Node.js and like maybe they're using Apollo server and stuff like that too. And I bet it's amazing. (laughs) Some of the stumbling that we're hitting is relating to maybe perhaps our, our specific setup. But I think for the most part, we've been really enjoying it. Some of the big questions that we're having now are probably, I'm curious how many organizations are struggling with this, is really around how do you design a good GraphQL API, mm-hmm. like an actually good one? How do you design the schema and how do you make it cover all the use cases, but also not be overly front-end specific? And right, yeah, it's, right. A, it's a subtle edge. And it definitely, like in a pendulum metaphor again, the pendulum with GraphQL has swung very much towards the front-end and towards the needs of the clients that we're rendering. But are we perhaps going a little too far in that? And yeah, it's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know that anyone's got it yet. Right. And, and we end up with these cases where like our user object, for example, and that user object has edges to pretty much every single data model. <laughs> yep. And like that doesn't feel right. Mm-hmm. It's certainly usable from a client side perspective, but like from a implementation perspective, you like you look up the user model and it's like importing the universe into it because it has to connect to everything. But at the same time, the inverse of that also doesn't feel right. 
having it so that every single model can get to the user and then you have to like aggregate them together. I don't know. Anyway, I've read a bunch of stuff now about seeing API design and like what is good GraphQL API design. And I, my personal opinion is that not enough people have built complicated APIs for GraphQL yet. It's still a very young technology in terms of its yeah. community adoption. Yeah. Yeah, I think some people have, and I, but I think for the most part, a lot of the APIs that have been built are pretty simple in nature. So this is part of where we're at now is, you know, we're like, okay, how do we make this better? How do we design APIs in a way that isn't going <laughs> to you know, just balloon out of control? And how do we build them in a way that we can still get, you know, like client-side caching benefits and mm-hmm. stuff like that? These are the sort of things that we're facing right now. Right. The story that you're telling there is very similar to the one that I've experienced we're in a world where most of our backends are Ruby, which I think probably has a similar limitation where it's wonderful having those types in the GraphQL system and flowing them to the, I didn't mean to say flow there, but here we are, uh, getting them into the front end via TypeScript flow or any number of other typed front end languages. But our back end is entirely dynamic. And so with Python and Ruby, that's that's going to be the case in both of them. And there's sort of a, a mismatch, even just in like camel casing is this subtle distinction. Mm. It's like, ah, the two cases that I've seen are either uh, TypeScript-based Apollo server on the back end. That seems to be a pretty nice experience. And then you've got types consistently throughout the whole conversation. That seems like a really nice option. Scala as another language and then framework with Sangria seems to be also a really strong contender in that world. And again, for me, the the draw there is the types. But most of my experience has been with Ruby. And there's a little bit of a mismatch there. And it feels a little bit odd trying to trick Ruby into doing this thing. But similarly, the idea of schema design and how do we do that well, there's, I think, some good conversations. And I like that that's where the conversation seems to be going with GraphQL. Everybody seems to be like, this is great. But we also need to figure out how to do it well because we're betting the platform on it. So let's have some conversations, everybody. But yeah. in a sense, I almost like that that is where we've moved the conversation. Like GraphQL has an inherent product-centric view of the world. Uh, it's biased towards the client, which if I'm going to pick a side to try and make the story easier for, I want to make my client-side development easier, perhaps at a little bit of additional work on the server side. But then I really like that conversation of how do we build a cohesive graph that defines our platform. So Khan Academy has a very unique and interesting set of models and relationships between them that's going to be very different than GitHub's. It's very different than Shopify's, than Facebook's. And the story of of having those conversations and thinking about the trade-offs and who do we connect to what, I think that's the right conversation to have. And ideally, if you can do that right and get that right for a platform, you've now solved that once in a centralized shared way. So I, I agree that it's still a struggling point, but I love that that's the, like, I do want to fight that fight. That's where I want to spend our time. So uh, it's interesting. It does feel like a little bit of a frontier, but a, a frontier, I, I think, will uh, have gold in them there, Hills. <laughs> that's my hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, is anything else you want to cover? I think I've taken up enough of your time today, John, but it... <laughs> This has been great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Ah, thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure. And where can folks best find you online if they want to keep up with what you're up to? <laughs> That's a good question, actually. My personal website is you know John Resig R E S I G dot com. But then I also on Twitter uh, J E Resig. I, I barely update my Twitter anymore. <laughs> I need to do something about that. Yeah. So I guess my Twitter. I don't know. People don't blog anymore. I don't know. No. <laughs> what do people do? Everybody's on the medium yeah. now. I don't know what that. I don't know. It's a whole new thing. <laughs> Well, hopefully, if and when you say things on the internet, they'll be roughly in those places, and we will send people there. Again, thank you so much, John. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our others, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. 
If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.